What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Deal or No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. Hello, everyone. I'm Mari Forth. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from Aora, Sydney. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. You can get this podcast along with all the other fantastic reality TV content by subscribing to robhasawebsite.com slash R-H-A-P-E-U-P-S feed. That's robhasawebsite.com slash R-H-A-P-U-P-S feed. We'd love it if you would subscribe to our dedicated feed. Please go to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You'll get your true crime on Tuesdays. If you've already subscribed, thank you very much. So, Murray, we have some true crime news today. It's sad news. The death of 32-year-old Tyler Goodson, who was a close friend of John McLemore, uh, the man who was extensively interviewed in the podcast S-Town. Tyler saw John as a father figure and was devastated by his suicide, which occurred in episode two of the podcast series, and that's eight years ago now. On Sunday, Tyler was shot by police during a standoff at his home. He died on Thursday, and because he was an organ donor, he was able to gift his organs to those who needed them. Fabulous, Tyler. Thank you for that. Tyler said that S-Town had brought a deluge of attention on him and the town, but had not done him any favours. The podcast has been downloaded 80 million times. He said, it's a sad story, especially if you're part of it. It's hell being famous without the rich part. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Mary, we've talked and we've talked with our guests as well about you know, how what the responsibility of true crime podcasting is. I mean, we report on the on the properties, but we're always, I hope, aware of and looking at how the people involved are being are being affected. This is this is a very sad story. The Guardian has a fantastic article and we will link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Mari, what did we watch this week? 
This week, we watched Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, directed by Jason Heer, who directed The Last Dance. Oh, sorry, good. <laughs> yes, uh, The Last Dance is an amazing docuseries, just fantastic. It's a three-part docuseries dropping weekly on Max in the U.S. and Binge in Australia. If you're listening to this the day it drops, currently the first two episodes are out. Um, however, we will only be talking about the first episode. Uh, we'll give you the rundown and recommend whether or not to keep watching. And now to a guest. We have an amazing returning guest. We last discussed Savior Complex with her. And here she is again with her social justice warrior cape on. It's four-timer Gia Worthy. Gia, how are you? I am doing great. It makes me so happy. I am one away from the five-timers club. I assume yeah. I get like a magnifying glass with it or something. Ooh, um, right. We promise right? we promised Matt a hat, I think. <laughs> I will also take a hat, yes. <laughs> um, but I mean, last time, I think we were all um, very unsatisfied with the framing <laughs> of uh, Savior Complex. Um, to I've put it mildly. Of, mm-hmm. I've sort of uh, kind of wiped it from my memory. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but I, I think that I am not alone in saying that I think that even just from this first episode alone, I think that we are in for a much more responsible documentary. And, uh, as somebody that has lived in Boston before and has, uh, her own history within like the state of Massachusetts as a whole, that um this is a, a much needed documentary because I, I feel like it's almost like a uh, terribly kept secret the history of racism within Boston specifically but I think it can mm-hmm. still be extended to Massachusetts as a whole which is the state that I've grown up in my whole life mm-hmm. and I'm very you know obviously this is a very devastating case with very devastating consequences for a lot of people but I am uh very um, I don't want to say happy, but um, <laughs> yeah, it yeah, it's like it's never it's never good to be talking about true guy crime as if it's like a happy thing. But I I find it refreshing that we are actually getting a documentary like this on such a big platform as HBO. That while it seems initially like a murder mystery type mm-hmm. documentary or docu-series that it actually does a lot of work unveiling uh, the racist history and racial disparity that uh, has come about from Boston and I would argue still exists um, in large proportions today. Yes, I completely agree with that. I did not know what we were in for in a sense of the framing of the crime, but this definitely um, was something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Again, yeah, it does feel weird to be happy about something in a sense. But when when we watch responsibly made like documentaries and docuseries, it is very, very refreshing, like Gia said. Um, so let's get to the events of episode one titled Roots. In October 1989, emergency services in Boston answered a 911 call from Charles Chuck Stewart, who said that he and his pregnant wife, Carol, had been carjacked and shot. Chuck was seriously wounded, but Carol was shot in the head and died within hours of the incident. Her baby was delivered via cesarean section. Chuck identified their assailant as a young black man in a black Adidas jogging suit. 
His statement to police set off a months-long manhunt by Boston PD. The episode then rewinds to cover the history of race relations in Boston, examining what was termed the Boston desegregation busing crisis, where from 1974 to 1988, Boston public schools were compelled by the courts to desegregate. This led to protests and riots, influenced Boston politics, and contributed to demographic shifts and so-called white flight to the suburbs. So, uh, episode one aside, I always love asking each one of you, what did you know about the case um, going into this? Again, no spoilers for right now, but Gia, did you know about this case going into this docuseries? So when you initially asked me to join for this one, um, I assumed part of it was because I was in, um, because I, I reside in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so I didn't initially remember this case and probably in part because this was uh, before I was born. But mm-hmm. once the pieces started coming together and they started talking about some of the details in there that um it did sound familiar to me so my guess is that i have heard about this case before in some sort of like secondhand information or as mm-hmm. like a like a throwaway fun fact or something but there are parts of this that do uh seem very familiar here okay sir how about you did you have any um clue about this case or recollection or anything uh, it wasn't an instant uh, recollection, but there are some images that are unmistakable. Mm-hmm. And once the episode started, I thought, "Oh yes, I actually I found that I knew what was what was going to happen. What was going to happen with the case? Mm-hmm. Not what was going to happen with the docu series. I've seen two episodes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be very careful not to spoil what I've seen in episode two. But the way this is made." And then when I looked and saw that he had directed The Last Dance, I thought, oh, mm-hmm. well, and I think you had the same reaction. Brilliant, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. But there is a photograph that will be familiar with anybody with a conscience, mm-hmm. uh, which is there's a little bit of very, very judicious bait and switch that the documentary filmmakers make. They introduce us to someone, they're a talking head, and it's only later that we find out what their closer connection to the crime might be. But Professor Ted Landsmark, you will all know this photograph of him as he is attacked, a black man surrounded by white protesters as a white protester is attacking him with the American flag on a pole. It's not a pole, on a essentially a spear and this is a photograph that is so familiar uh and then we realize oh we were we've been speaking to him for half half the episode (laughs) so the way that the material is woven and the way that the people involved are woven I thought was extraordinary yes I did know the case but putting it in context is the huge strength I think of this docuseries Yes, I agree. I actually really knew this case and was very excited to cover this. And then watching this docuseries, I was like, oh my gosh, this very rarely, I've talked about it in the last couple episodes, but very rarely 
do I know a true crime case going into a property, a documentary, a docuseries, and then that documentary or that docuseries either reveals something that I didn't know or takes a completely different approach than all the other ones I had watched. And this docuseries managed to do that. So not only take um, a route that, like Gia said, is not wasn't often explored, but also does it in a way that is so like educational while also being informative, while also being entertaining. It 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 like hit it out of the park on all three. So I will say that I knew this case as the yuppie murder. Um, that's how it's always been presented across like multiple true crime properties, like the tale of like some rich people and one getting murdered. Like it, they always came at it from a capitalistic viewpoint and all of the other properties I would see would kind of yada yada the racist um, portion or the, or, or the racism embedded within the case itself and really just focus on uh, money is the root of all evil type type kind of like approach and to see this take such a different turn and also be filled with so much archival footage um very uh uh, present um talking heads like sarah mentioned a lot of these talking heads were there they're in the they're in the trenches they're in the archival footage you know it's it was uh, astounding to to say the the least um but we have to kind of get into episode one. And I want to say, um, watching this as somebody who knows the case, but like Sarah says, didn't know how it was going to unfold. I was watching it with my husband, James, who automatically did not, he didn't know the case. And with like, like within five minutes of it, he's like, wait, what? Like from just the 911 call, um, let's, let's talk about the 911 call. Sarah, it opens with Chuck Stewart's 911 call, which during the time was found to be very harrowing. Uh, what did you think of the use of the audio portion here? Well, I mean, we are very suspicious of 911 calls often used to shock or to give flavor or 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 color to a work uh-huh. here it is fundamental absolutely yeah. fundamental and weirdly i've either heard it or i've read it when the investigative journalist starts to break it down in episode 2 i knew a lot of the points that she was making with the tape so i think it's it's fundamental it gives us an insight into chuck we're not going to get a lot from him himself. And I just think it set the scene. It was almost uh-huh. like a thriller because he can't tell them what street he's on. Uh-huh. And there is a very creative way that they find to find him where yeah. they have cruisers cruising around and they're saying, okay, K59, turn your sirens on, turn them off because they can hear because the line's still open. He says he's blacked out but the line's still open and they almost triangulate the position. And I thought, whatever we think about law enforcement, here's a fantastic example of creative thinking and concern. Concern for white people, <laughs> not white <laughs> black man in a bad part of town, mm-hmm. uh, but concern um, nonetheless. 
it it's uh-huh. it just sets your I'm not surprised that James thought what when he heard <laughs> his, his voice we're trying not to spoil so we won't spoil yeah. but his, yeah. his, if you watch any true crime his the setup of using his voice first his is the first voice to tell the story mm-hmm. and the story flows from his voice yeah um, exactly. You know, and then immediately smash cut to young Dart Adams, a writer and historian, just looks at the camera and says, yeah, we all fit that description. <laughs> Boom. The setup is so brilliant. Yeah. And uh, it was so funny because James also immediately clocked. He's like, wait, is he on a car phone? I was like, yeah, because you would the the and some of the other properties that I've seen, they make such a big deal about the car phone because, again, I said these were known as the yuppie murders. If you don't know what a yuppie means uh, back in the 80s, it was a young professional. Um, so they're known as yuppies. And at the time, this was during the Reagan administration. You know, capitalism was mm. peak. Yep. Uh, a lot of. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> a lot of white people were getting very, very rich and they were um, living in these towns and stuff like that. And the ultimate status symbol at that time was having a car phone. And it it's really one of those things that the 911 call, the car phone of it all was what really set the tone for a lot of those other properties. So I kind of like that this property doesn't even touch on that really doesn't at least in this first episode it doesn't touch on the aspect about how much money these these people were making it's it's basically about the immediate aftermath of the story that's being told so once the the police do manage to triangulate their their car Gia, we get a whole bunch of archival video footage and i will definitely give a um a content warning here because the video footage is live it is um not blurred. Uh, we see a lot of Carol's um, body in the, in these images. She still is technically alive at this point, um, but it it's not pleasant to really watch. But it was one of those things where I was like, wow, again, in the other properties that I've watched, they don't show as much of this footage here because when those police found them, I, I I don't know. I guess the reporters were right behind them or who, I don't know who was taking this footage, but there was so much footage and photos of these people in this car and of this rescue scenario. And you see all of it. And normally in other pro- other properties, I've only seen snippets. I've seen the very, very famous photo, unfortunately, of Chuck and Carol in the car with Carol kind of slumped over. And this footage actually was um, used on the front page of the Boston Herald, I believe, at the time of the murder, uncensored. So it really was used to spark people's outrage, in a sense. Um, Gia, what was your thoughts on the use of the archival footage? I mean, there's always, you know, something so much more real about seeing the event as it was happening, seeing people's immediate reactions to it, because I Mm -hmm. have not seen any of that footage before um and it's very harrowing Mm -hmm. the um and i i think part of it is you have to think about like uh the importance of responsible journalism here especially as uh yeah um and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of cases coming up recently um that 
you know, I have touched upon this as well. But I do think that, you know, in terms of the police taking um, this man's word for, you know, the the only point of view that is important here um, and, you know, talking about everything that comes after this, the man, the months long manhunt, the stop and frisk that was happening to black men in Mission Hill for months on end, unprompted. Um, and I, I think it's footage like this and used in the way that it was that was used to uh, shock and anger and cause a lot of uh, fear and paranoia. Mm -hmm. And that leads to what we see now is this justification of blatant racism within a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, And we see a lot of the results of that. I think um, obviously the, the footage of the initial um, the initial crime is going to be the one that a lot of people remember the most and the one mm-hmm. that sticks with a lot of people, especially the people that were living in Boston at that time. I imagine that identify with um, with the victim or with that family. Um, you know, I I know a lot of people that live in those areas that uh, they were highlighting in like the more affluent parts of like right outside of Boston. But the Mm -hmm. ones that really stuck with me as well was the interviews that we saw um, in that same time period of the black uh, community in Mission Hill that was uh, being on the brunt end of the months long assaults that were occurring um, in this time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Cause immediately we see in the archival footage when they ask Chuck who who did this, he says black male, Adidas tracksuit, and it's instantly on go. You know, it's instantly we're knocking these doors, we're instituting uh stopping and frisking. We are basically violating the rights of the black residents, black uh residents in Mission Hill and the Mission Hill pro- projects and the surrounding areas. And um that part I did know, but I loved at this point, the docuseries itself takes us back to the roots of, of why uh, there's such a rift here between um, black and white people in Boston. And this was truly amazing to me because I didn't know anything about this. Um, again, we're, we're talking about the 1974 busing ruling where basically the schools and the black neighborhoods were not getting as much attention they weren't good because of course like they never get as much resources and um black parents petitioned to be able to be allowed to send their their kids to white schools and vice versa you know to basically even out the amount of resources that uh, that both schools are getting this was in 1974 and i was shocked (laughs) i was like i was like in 1974 is when you're integrating like what and i think it's very interesting because we're we're shown like ruby bridges we're 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 shown the like the nine like in the south like the integration in the south and like the 50s the 60s but it doesn't talk about how pervasive racism up here in the north is and how they use it's like they say natural desegregation in these different communities in order to uh keep the races separate and i love the breakdown of the map of like okay the black re- residents are in mission hill roxbury dorchester 
Yes. Yeah. And then like all of the, their white counterparts in like South Boston, Charleston, Cambridge. They um, had a whole Somers- map. Somersville. Somersville is a big yeah. one. Yeah. And, and and so we're getting the busing. We're getting these interviews. Sarah, I mean, these people are saying this stuff with their whole chest. Oh. There are just the and rushing it. Thrown away. And rushing it. And young The hard people. R. <laughs> you, you can see the hard R written on the wall. On buildings, yes. <laughs> There's a teenage girl who describes how white girl who describes how clever she was and how far ahead in her studies and suddenly (laughs) surrounded by black students she became dumb like not only were they dumb she became dumb she got a contact dumb and she uh left school early and blamed them okay that was so funny young racist I looked at James. I was like, really? It's the black people's fault that you dropped out of school. I don't think you're as advanced yes. as you thought you were. Yes. Um, I mean, interestingly, there was a contemporaneous interview with the mother of students at a predominantly black school who said, uh, we didn't ask for this. We just <laughs> asked for more resources. Yeah. You all decided that this was how it was going to be done. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, I mean educational equity is is a fight that's literally ongoing to this day um so this wasn't yeah but this busing the the uproar of the busing and it just kind of uh sold racial tensions even further um until we we get mayor flynn here um Mayor Flynn, he was a former basketball player who who came up, who interacted with uh, his black players and black teammates. And he he felt like he wanted to bring unity to Boston. And for a time there, I, I believe he was elected in, was it 1982-ish? Something to that effect. Anyways, he was elected sometime in the early 80s. And he was trying to bring unity, racial unity to Boston. And for a second, it felt like maybe you know, maybe we could heal some of those wounds, but it wasn't, it was mostly like racial crime itself was very high at the beginning, like near the beginning of the busing stuff and all that. But once Mayor Flynn took office, they, they made it their mission to, you know, stop racial crime. So um, harsher punishment, stuff like that. And they eventually did get racial crime to go down. But uh, somebody pointed out, yes, racial crime and racially motivated crimes went down, but the racism did not go away. Gia, uh, what did you think about this segment about Mayor Flynn? And then the um, the crack epidemic that kind of throws Boston into turmoil. I mean, it's unfortunately a tale as old as time. And this is not something mm-hmm. that is unique to Boston, but we often no. don't think of Boston as um, one of the epicenters of an mm-hmm. epidemic like this. Or even just, uh, Mari, you kind of touched upon it already that the, um, you know, when we think about racism in America, particularly around like 60s, 70s, around like civil rights era and mm-hmm. post it. We think a lot about the deep South. Um, yeah, we think uh-huh. about a lot about these uh, usually what is like a largely conservative uh, states. 
Um, mm-hmm. We don't think about places like Boston like this, or we yeah. don't think about Massachusetts. It's like, you know, that usually is stereotyped as one of the most liberal states. Progressive and, liberal. Yep. Yes, one of the, the good ones. That's yes, what they call one of the good ones. And that's what I was about yeah. to say. Uh, Mayor, Mayor Flynn also uh, kind of a great, um, a, you know, I, I don't know too much about his reign outside of this documentary, but. He, you know, uh, again, very similar to like a nice representative of the state of Massachusetts. He's one of the good ones. He has this strong connection with uh, the black community, even though he himself is not black. This seems like an excellent compromise here. But when it comes time to uh, step up and put your money where your mouth is, um, shocking what sides that end up taking place here i know it's it's terrible Mm -hmm. when i tell um, you i was waiting for him to be shot yeah (laughs) during during the bit where he was one of the good ones like don't tell me he got assassinated because i didn't know about him that is true i i did think of that for like two seconds yeah they set it up like that they they really did they really did and uh, became one of the not so good ones yeah Mm -hmm. and i i kind of expected it to be more uh the second answer him being one of the good ones until it's actually time to uh, be one of the good ones, um, quote unquote. Um, But the, you know, and it's kind of an understated part of history about how damaging uh, the war on drugs, the crack epidemic, um, the AIDS crisis, all of these things Mm. in these major city, um, like metropolitan areas like Boston, um, really disproportionately impacted uh, the black community and largely in part, not because uh, the black community is more likely to do drugs or uh, have unprotected sex or engage mm-hmm. in illicit activity. Uh, they don't have the resources that predominantly white communities would go to. And one of the things that actually really stuck out to me personally is that um, when they were doing the interviews of the individuals that um, that lived in these uh, more affluent areas, the suburban areas. They they mm-hmm. use the word suburban areas, um, like outside of Boston, a lot um, in this part. And um, they all they already made up their mind about these areas before even step foot stepping foot into there. Yeah. Um, with uh, you know, they had you know, it's not safe to go there. Uh, they wouldn't be able to like walk through there. This is mm-hmm. something that happens about any city with racially diverse areas, particularly mm-hmm. like I hear all the time about the city that I live in. I live in a, a very racially diverse uh, community. We have very large black and Puerto Rican populations here and we get the same stereotypes here. And it's so aggravating to hear all the time. And it's not just unique to Massachusetts. It's every city, but it, it's often that these areas have already made up their minds that this is the bad part of town. This is a bad area. And they don't actually look at the reasons. Why do you think this is the bad area? Cause you know, I've been it's through these towns. All the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been through these towns all the time and I'm not necessarily saying uh, walk, walk by yourself in these very busy towns if uh, you're not comfortable doing so. But um, it's definitely takes a moment to realize like, okay, what is it actually that makes me uncomfortable about this area or about the, the bad things, quote unquote, bad things that happen in these towns. And um, 
it, it, it adds up. It's not a, a coincidence that these areas are largely impacted by a lot of the racist policies that were there at the time. Oh, yeah. And, still, and a lot of them still exist today. Exactly. Um, and we get from the Mission Hill residents, they felt the same way. They felt yeah. like they could not step they in, said they were a, more in danger in the white areas. Yeah, in the in the white areas, exactly. So, mm. um, it it goes both ways. And seeing how I loved when they were the Mission Hill residents were talking about how it felt like a family. The projects, you know, everybody knew each other in the projects, and it wasn't until the crack epidemic until it really got to be as bad as it was. And again, if you if you forgot out there, dear listener, the crack epidemic was funded by the U.S. government and pushed into these neighborhoods. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, you know, you know, to destabilize the black community. But all that being said, like Gia said, this wasn't just happening in Boston. It was happening in New York. Um, Sarah, do you have anything to add before I, I move on a little bit? I was just going to say, uh, don't say no to drugs. Say no, thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so we're we're back to present day where um, the police are initi- are initiating stop and frisk to to basically harass young young black people. And we actually got um, one of the talking heads, Detective Bill Dunn for the oh. PD. Wow. Oh, man. What a twat. <laughs> how, did, how he sat down for this interview, how he thought. He was going to be protected. How he thought that his narrative would be the narrative that was accepted. I mean, have you seen who's making the documentary? I mean, I'm sure yeah. they're neutral. I'm sure they're neutral. But, yeah, Bill is going to really come into his own in episode two. Yeah. What a – I can't say the words. I can't. Yeah, I know. That's, a, that's why I felt, I, I felt plot was all in incompetent compensating yeah. right there i i want to say more but yeah um and it did so- lead to one of my favorite parts of the documentary though which is that they show the testimony to um the other talking head um i forget this man's name but the um Derek jackson Derek jackson yes um yeah. and he was able to provide a uh a very well spoken uh rebuttal and i say <laughs> that because I say well-spoken because if I heard that, I had much less eloquent words to say about this and about his uh, phrasing of, oh, if you're not doing anything, then you have nothing to hide. Then, of course, we can harass you because then you don't have anything to hide. Um, And the way he talked about how this is like he is beyond a a bully because I can... uh, I can uh, deal with a bully. This is a tyrant. Um, So like such a big difference in, you know, the, the, the laws that are in place to this day that allow um, for the police state to still persist. It's just, this is where I got like particularly emotional and angry watching it outside of obviously uh, the victim in this case and the, hearing about her was also very emotional but talking about mm-hmm. kind of the immediate aftermath was but that was he is very so, he is so confident and convinced in his rightness and his mm-hmm. he's so self-satisfied he's so i mean i'm always suspicious of anyone without self-reflection 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but this goes beyond this. Mari, this man, I just took one look at him and, and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He actually was on the force until 2016, retired as a detective. Can and you imagine the damage? Uh, I know Derek Jackson. Boo this man. Boo. 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 Like Derek Jackson could could still remember like some of the names of the cops that had patrol that patrolled him, or like the nicknames they called Bill Dunn Fat of Skinny and Fat. Um, that was the guy and his his partner. He said that once they gave them a Bronco, they were basically tyrants. And you can tell just the way that Bill Dunn talked about power and 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 he said like, "Hey, just comply." That way you don't get killed and I don't get hurt. How hard is that to comprehend? So you don't get killed and I don't get hurt. That is literally what that police officer said. That goes to show you that, like, how are you supposed to do this job? If you're so afraid of, like, being able to go, like, hand to hand with somebody who's not trained, you're just like, I'm going to kill you. It, and you know ask questions later you know what i'm saying like do what yes. i say or you will get killed is what he just he just he, basically said out loud he also loved referring to how bad he was referring yes. to the fine line that he often stepped over if you know what i mean wink wink like the the utter yeah. you know he is so insured of his place in so this cavalier. society mm-hmm. that he, yeah cavalier that he can wink wink on yes. some appalling things that he did. Yes. Thinking that we're going to go, oh, Bill, <laughs> you're so, oh, you're so bad, Bill. When, oh, they went, yeah. when they went to arrest Alan Swanson, who is the suspect that we're left with at the end of episode one, um, he says, we, he says, yeah, you know, we charmed our way in there um, and Ugh. we, we turned the place over. And I'm like, Ugh. but Meanwhile, and again, he held we're up getting those big meaty hands, and he said, "These are my warrants. These are my I warrants." Him. I hate him Ugh. so much. Um, so we do get uh, like archival footage talking to um, some residents. Uh, we got like like mostly kids, like a, a kid saying like he's been. They were strip searching people. They were, you know, stop and frisk. Let's be real; it was only used in these black neighborhoods. They weren't stopping and frisking people in the suburbs. Um, and um, also, I just wanted to say another thing that stuck with me that I think is still very prevalent today. Um, it wasn't. It was mostly black men that were stopped to yeah. um, to deal with um, that that were uh, victims of the stop and frisk policy. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just black men. It was predom- a, a large portion of it were black boys, like babies, yes. teenagers. Yes. And um, asking 14 year olds if they are you know, 14 year olds, like kids that kids, that, you... kids that like go back to their community centers because they're scared to walk home and they have to wait like yeah. kids that need chaperones like they're these are they were scouts. Are, they yes, had to go back to scouts. the scout hole because they they're, were scared. These are babies and it the, and I know for a fact those cops did not see them as babies. Mm-hmm. They saw them as grown men which is often Mm-hmm. A huge issue that plays into the discrimination of black people in the police state. Um, mm-hmm. And that and is the, the part media. that sticks the with me and well. the media. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was so heartbreaking for me to see. I'm like tearing up right now as we're talking mm-hmm. about it, that like this is it. just so many things that stuck out to me about just how deeply this 
racism went and how it still exists today. It's so deeply entrenched in our system that the things that you're that we're talking about here. Like what, what business do you have stopping and frisking a 14 year old boy? If you're looking for a a 30 year old man, man. you don't, you just see this person as a grown man because you don't, you see black boys as like dangerous adults that Mm -hmm. have the same uh, capabilities of like a a hardened criminal. And that is, uh, that's another part that was just so heartbreaking to watch here. Yeah, and think how traumatizing that is to these kids. Oh. So yeah, so that's the end of episode one. It really just dives into the root of the racial tension and division in Boston, which I love that they use this case as like a foil for that because I think it is a very important aspect to the case that they, that is just not known and talked about. I think this episode did a pretty good job of showing the immediate aftermath. We love documentaries Mm -hmm. where it takes you back to that actual time. You feel like it it took you back to that time, to that date and you're learning, you're going, you're learning as the police are learning. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, this is one of those things where seeing it from this point of view is very different from always being presented how I I previously seen it. Any final um words about episode one before we move on to I, talk about further properties? Yeah. Um just um just to touch base on that, this is obviously we're talking a lot about the uh you know there was a lot to uncover just in this very short, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, this is a very short history that is being shown of a large issue that is happening continues to happen in Boston, but happened as a result of this case. But I, I don't want to overlook the fact that there is a, a, a woman that was murdered uh, here mm-hmm. that um, that whose life was taken, you know, not, you know, uh, that is a victim of a senseless crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and while and the end of episode one, um, obviously it does reflect on like who Carol was as a person and very you know, briefly, yeah, that very briefly. And like how this, uh, how important she was to a lot of people, the family mm-hmm. and loved ones that she left behind. Um, so this is not to say that, uh, her loved ones are not, um, are not correct for wanting to get justice for their, uh, for for their deceased loved one or Mm -hmm. that they're not, you know, like that they're wrong for taking, you know, the evidence they were told at face value and not, you know, just wanting an immediate reaction here. However, I think the documentary does a very good job at hinting towards the end of this episode that the, the problems that they were looking at, that they were in like a, 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 a crime town, quote unquote, or that they were in like a dangerous area um, and that they were looking for uh, a black man that was robbing them in a senseless crime might not actually have been the answer that they were looking for. And if law enforcement had done their job properly, perhaps they would have gotten justice much sooner and a lot of and a lot less lives would have been impacted by the results here. Very good point. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, please give your spoiler-free synopsis of episodes two and three. (laughs) 
So uh, Murder in Boston, episode two is Rampage. The shocking Stuart murder incites a massive dragnet for a black man in an Adidas jogging suit, as we heard in the first episode. Armed with stop and frisk powers, police tear through Mission, the Mission Hill neighbourhood. Virtually every young black man is a suspect. We've mentioned that, but this episode goes into specific suspects, plural, and we actually get to speak to some of their families and we see not uh, the, one of the great things about this documentary is it lenses out to look at societal issues and then lenses in to look at very particular people. So thank you, Gia, yes. for bringing us back to Carol. Yes. And, and then, I just I just want to say um, that uh, if you are sitting here like, wow, I signed up for a true crime you know, docuseries. I didn't sign up for a history lesson. I think we needed the history lesson of episode one. Episode one yes. lays a very good foundational groundwork to tell you how we got to this point in order for us to go back to the case and really dive into the case. So I, yeah. I really want to encourage people to stick with it. Uh, spoiler alert for our ratings um, and our, <laughs> and our recommendations, but like, like this is what you use a three-part docuseries for. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is exactly what you use a three-part three docuseries for. You set the foundation, then you you go back in with your facts and more details about the case. So if you're wor- if you're wondering where are the details of the case, where is more about the victim and all of that, it'll be it's coming. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so episode three is called Reckoning, and it picks up two months after the end of the events of episode two, as revelations emerge from Chuck's family. Troubling errors in the police investigation come to light. I mean, we've sort of seen them coming down. <laughs> and the black community responds, a trigger warning for suicide in episode three. Yes. So, Murray, you want to discuss another property, the 1980s, The Deadliest Decade, season one, episode one, The Yuppie Murder. Yes. Um, and just a quick spoiler alert right here. Spoiler alert, I am going to spoil the case. I'm still going to like hold back a little bit, but I'm going to spoil a, a, like a, a good chunk of it. So if you want to remain spoiler free to enjoy the um, next two episodes, feel free to just jump forward to the time code in the show notes. We'll have it in the show notes so you can just boop, jump forward. Give me a few minutes and then you'll be right to our ratings. Okay. So yes, uh, the 1980s, the deadliest decade. I, I've, I think I've talked about this on a previous podcast. I like both iterations of, of uh, the deadliest decade, both the, in the 1980s and the 1990s. It's two like anthology series on the Discovery Plus platform. And as soon as I saw this, doc, this docuseries, Murder in Boston, I was like, yeah, I remember this from the 1980s, deadliest decade. I forgot that it was like the first episode, like season one, episode one, but it it sets the tone of that decade because like I previously talked about, um, this was all about money. They focused this one. It's of, again, it was known as the yuppie murder. What people don't understand is it wasn't called the yuppie murder until everything unraveled. Um, as the police were investigating, it was all about, let's find this, this black man who killed this pregnant, this poor pregnant white woman in, um, a quote unquote bad section of the house. What it actually turns out to be is the husband sets up the murder of the of his wife. And um again, if the police had did just a modicum of police work, we all know that normally if a wife is murdered, you should always look at the spouse, especially if the wife is shot in the head and the spouse is shot somewhere else on their body, you know? Um 
but it would this this version of um the case again that if you want to know more about chuck and carol this might be a good case for you to watch it talks about their early upbringings it talks about the capitalism and the greed of that era um in time it talks about how they both like moved up the ranks they started making hundreds of thousands of dollars in the 1980s and how they were able to live in a nice suburban area but all of that was for nothing because chuck like and it's so crazy because he he decides to kill her and there's really still no good reason as insurance insurance money but it can't just be that yeah like she she's pregnant he he uh, it is mentioned that he didn't necessarily want the baby at the time they had been together for years they had already been married for years but he was afraid like she had a really good salary she was a lawyer she was a tax lawyer and the both of their salaries combined was what was able for them to live a very high class lifestyle so it's presumed that he um that he he kills her because he he wants to keep up the lifestyle um and they wouldn't be able to maintain if they had if her and the baby it, it honestly if, if there's no good reason um but i i do like the deadliest decade episode but now after i've watched um murder in boston i see how they they truly just glossed over <laughs> Everything that has to do with the racist aspect, they glossed over uh, the the terrorizing of the black community. They mention it, but they don't talk about it. They don't talk about who the case almost ends up on the suspect that almost, you know, gets put in jail for this murder before. Luckily, they get a big break and find out that it really was just Chuck behind it. So, um, I liked it. If I I, I like it, if if you want to di- like a different. If you want to know a little bit more on that side, um, but I I definitely can't wait to watch the the next two episodes of Murder in Boston because I feel like I'm going to get a more well rounded view of the case as a whole. So uh, let's jump over to our ratings. Um, Gia, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate uh, Murder in Boston out of a possible five? Oh, I I just love maybe part of it is because Savior Complex was so bad. But um, but I just I thought this was really well done. Um, I feel like it's sort of not fair because I've only seen the first episode so far. I will definitely be finishing it, though. Um, I'm not necessarily a person that feels obligated to finish something once I start it. But with this, I definitely want to finish it just to see how the rest of the story goes. But I thought overall, this was a really well done first episode of this docuseries. And it went in depth in ways that I really did not expect it to, um, especially further expanding my known uh, my own knowledge on a city that I grew up in. So I'll say for the first episode, it was five magnifying glasses. Um I, I'm still thinking about a lot of different parts in this and really enjoyed uh, the store, really enjoyed the quality of this documentary. I will say I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I think if the quality stays the same in episodes two and three, I don't see why I wouldn't, I wouldn't still give it five magnifying glasses. I can't really think of anything that I didn't enjoy about uh, like the quality of this film. 
I completely agree with that. Sarah, how many magnifier glasses are you going to rate it? Yeah, I'm a five. Um, mm-hmm. I was a five from episode one, and then episode two is even better, but I can't oh! give it more than five. <laughs> it's intriguing because each episode is around 50 minutes, which is mm-hmm. it can be very long if it's badly made, but it's actually very <laughs> short, and the amount of material that, that the documentarian gets through and the way it's laid out for you and the people that he speaks to and how they are treated and respected and what they have to say is so extraordinary. I, I, I'm i got my tongue hanging out for episode three. Murray, you and I will give our full uh, yes. review in a couple of weeks once, once Murray's had a chance to see all episodes. For some reason, dropped early in Australia. Who knows? Like, Maybe when does that happen? Yeah, <laughs> it trickled downhill. But yeah. I'll say that I came to the end of episode one as a five, so it's not a spoiler to say after two episodes, it's still a five. What about you, Mari? I completely agree. Five, just totally across the board. Um, I was so bummed when I realized I couldn't watch episode two before we recorded this. So um, I am I'm very interested in seeing the rest of the series. Highly, highly recommend. I am glad that we got to talk about episode one and recommend it to our listeners just in case it wasn't on our listeners radar. I truly believe this is one of those docuseries that if you've been listening to us and, you know, we've been I've been not too high on a lot of stuff recently. Definitely go and watch this because it it was again refreshing. It was refreshing, well made, well produced, just really good all around. And I can't wait till we come back and we give our um, you know um, in depth full um, recommendations uh, in a in a few weeks. Um, yeah, I man. It, yeah. it feels like I mean, it's been a while since we've seen something this. Yeah. I mean, we've spoken for an hour about one episode, so maybe, maybe yeah. lucky we didn't yeah. see it all. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, now let's go on to our recommendations. Gia, do you have anything to recommend to our listeners? I would, um, and maybe I'm a little inspired because just got back from our New Orleans trip, but mm-hmm. I recommend, I don't have anything specific that um, any like information in my archives my my bookshelf on um readings <laughs> pertaining to cases like this however i would recommend supporting your like local historians artists in your area like especially the ones that live in quote unquote uh the rougher na- uh neighborhoods like learn about the history of your city um especially if you live in a has um in a racially diverse city, because I am sure there's a lot of uh, very interesting information that you can learn about it. So that is my vague, but I feel like very necessary (laughs) recommendation. Yeah, I love that. Um, Sarah, what about you? What do you have to recommend to our listeners? I'm going to recommend my current obsession. It's a podcast called I've Had It. (laughs) Uh, Jennifer and Angie are middle-aged, middle-class privileged white southern ladies who look like they would have certain views they themselves say yes we look like we'd have certain views but they are in fact right on they are woke as fuck and they are hilarious each week they tell us what they've had it with from slow walkers to perfect mothers to homophobia they have amazing guests Uh, and they also invite their listeners to leave a voice memo on instagram uh 
telling them what we have had it with. They are <laughs> absolutely fantastic, really refreshing. Uh, one of them's from Texas, one of them's from Oklahoma, though they both live in Oklahoma now. And they are voices, I was going to say voices crying in the wilderness, but I think they are strong and positive voices uh, for good. They're two of the good ones. <laughs> so I thoroughly recommend it. I've had it. A podcast with Jennifer and Angie, also called Pumps. And Mari, what about you? What have you got to recommend? Um, I too kind of have a new obsession. I, if you've been uh, following, if you follow me on Twitter, maybe see me talk about this. But I want to talk about the uh, show called Found, a police style procedural. It's like my new, newfound police style pr- procedural. It's called Found. It is on NBC. Um, it's 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 new, but all the episodes are out. I'm behind. I'm like I'm late to it. I I I am late to it because I had to watch other things. But it it is basically it, it's so hard to explain because it's it's like scandal, lie to me, Hannibal, um, and criminal minds all rolled into one. It is so good. It stars Shanola Hampton who uh. If you watch Shameless on Showtime, mm-hmm. she played the neighbor in Shameless. Um, and in Found, she plays a Black woman who was kidnapped as a child, who basically was held captive for over a year by her abductor and was able to free herself from captivity. Both her, she was able to free herself and another little girl who was... Um, captive who was held captive with her and she then starts a firm called mosley and associates where they are not the police (laughs) they're not the police what they do is they look for those those people who the police are ignoring you know what i'm saying like they make it very clear in the pilot episode that they are searching for the little girls that the police are not looking for or or the marginalized people the police are not looking for and all of their cases are based around that like um it it's so good and she has this whole team and of course each member of the team is has their own little thing and their their tech guy is agoraphobic so he's in his house doing the tech from his house they have a basically a mentalist um on staff who she listens to like the people who are reporting the person um, lost. She listens to their descriptions and then she tries to piece together things. And th- that woman, um, she actually is from the series Lie to Me. And I was like, I love Lie to Me. I don't know if you guys ever watch Lie to Me. I don't. I do not understand how it didn't get like twenty seasons. Um, but it was one of my favorite shows. Um, so found is it's so good. It it it, it it's it feels like like I said it, it feels like a scandal. It feels like a how to get away with murder. Um, but also there's so many twists in like the first episode. I don't want to give it away. I really don't want to give it away. But if you like, if you like Law and Order SVU, if you love Cold Case, if you love The Closer, if you love any of those, um, you know, day, like daytime uh, police style procedurals, I think you would love found. Definitely go check it out. I watched it on the Peacock Act. It's on uh, Binge in Australia. Yes. 
At Crime Scene, we are eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP. That's S E E N. Or email us at Crime Scene RHAP at gmail.com. We're on TikTok at crime.scene and on all the socials at Crime Scene Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our feed. Rob has the website.com slash crime feed. It makes a big difference. Gia, what do you have going on and where can the people find you? You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Classically Gia for all of my reality TV shenanigans. Um, over on Silent Podcast, I'm doing my weekly recaps of Survivor 45 on our podcast, I Don't Know About That. Um, and I also have a new episode of Slosh Survivor in the works. That's where we combine um, drunk history with Survivor history and talk about some of our favorite moments in Survivor history um, over some beverages, some uh, alcoholic beverages, if you will. Um, It's a very fun time and I can't wait for this episode to be finished. Um, I just have to do a little bit of editing. And then also please follow the Survivor Diversity campaign at Serve Diversity. That's at S-U-R-V Diversity. And uh, please check our weekly roundups written by me and my good friend Christine Pallon on Inside Survivor. All right. Uh, Sarah, what do you have going on and where can the people find you? Uh, the people can follow me if they'd like to do that at Sarah Carradine on all the things. Over on Post Show Recaps, I'm covering The Buccaneers and just finished covering The Artful Dodger. I joined Grace and Jess on the full spoiler recap covering Colin from Accounts and we'll be bringing you a full spoiler recap of A Murder at the End of the World next week. On Silent Podcasts, I've just finished coverage of Squid Game, The Challenge, and the Aussie Queens bring you a season overview of Love Island Australia, season one, starring one of the stallions from Amazing Race Australia, celebrity edition, Teddy, when he was a little embryo stallion. (laughs) So young. Uh, Watch out for my Traders UK coverage, starting with a pre-season episode with the winner of the Traders New Zealand season one. And what about you, Mari? What do you have going on? Of course, you can follow me over on Twitter at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two, like the number two. And um, every week, me and Chappelle over on the Connect on Post Show Recaps are uh, covering rap shit. Uh, we are finishing it up. We about ha- we have two more episodes to go, and we'll be at the end of season two. Uh, but no fear, after rap shit. Uh, the connect is cooking up some some movie reviews uh we're, we're, we're cooking up some some more stuff so make sure you go and subscribe by going to postshowrecaps.com slash connect in order to stay um notified when whatever we're doing sarah what are we covering next week uh, next week on Crime Scene, we're covering JFK, One Day in America with Dylan Reeve. You can watch it on Hulu and send us your comments and questions. Thanks to Gia Worthy for joining us, Will from America for the theme music, and the whole RHAP team behind the scenes. Until next time, case, case closed. closed. <laughs>